So I want to begin reading in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians. We'll read all 10 verses of the first chapter. We'll wrap up our time there in this chapter today, and then we'll pick up in chapter 2, verse 1, beginning next week. So I want to read to you this letter that Paul writes to this church to encourage and to, and to admonish them and to build them up, beginning in verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you join me in praying this morning? I want to lead us through some very simple things that I think this text calls us to ask of God. So would you pray with me? Would you close your eyes and pray? Would you begin first, just tell God how much you need him? Would you just begin, God, I need you. And in, in a feeble and simple way, God, I need you. Without you, I am hopeless. Or would you pray for me? Would you just ask God to simply use me to speak what's here, that his words would remain forever, and then my words would simply pass away? Would you just ask God that he would use me to speak? Or would you ask God that we would understand this text, it would make sense, and we would find good news in it? God, we know you'll answer these prayers. You have promised to be with us and for us in Jesus. Amen. The last couple of weeks have been walking through this text, thinking through what it looks like to be a New Testament church. And I remember if I, I hope you remember, I, I invited you to think about this particular letter that's meant to be kind of a window through which we see the apostles' teaching as kind of a letter to what, in, in comparison to the other letters of the New Testament, is kind of boring. And I mean for that to be a good thing. Right? In, in a sense, there's, there's no, this isn't like a theological manifesto or a correction to the people, like maybe the book of Colossians or the book of the Romans, but it's also not like to, to a, a church that's divided over theological things like Galatians or like personal things like, like 
Philippians or like ethical things like the Corinthians. There's, there's none of that, none of that controversy. What you find here is a very mundane encouragement of Paul writing a church and saying, good job, well done, keep doing it. And in this first chapter, he points out what I would call evidences of God's grace. And he means to encourage them and then through this, I think, call them to and then call us to something great. We saw this over the last couple of weeks, the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. It confronts us with power in the Holy Spirit and calls us to revel with conviction in the God who saves us. He says, God has chosen you. God has chosen you. Those, those are bold words, aren't they? God has chosen you. And, and that often, I, I want to I point out that often as, you, as those kinds of reservations even are raising in your mind, like that often can be taken as a way to, someone will take that very pompous, right? Like, God chose me, right? God chose me. I'm, I'm, I'm special. And you'll say, well, that's, that's very pompous. But no, that, that isn't the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. When we say that God has chosen us, it's actually the least pompous thing that we do because it's marvelous. Like, we marvel at it. We're like, God chose me. No, wait, wait, wait. I don't think you understand. Have you met me? God chose us. No, 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 no. You, you don't understand. You, you need to get to know. If that doesn't make you marvel, you don't know these people very well. If it doesn't amaze you that God would choose you and want to use you and make you his own, when you were dead in your sin to make you alive and a family member of his own very household, if that doesn't cause you to marvel, you have not met these people. Or you're in deep denial about who you really are. He's chosen us. Well, how do we know? You'll say, that's a broad thing to say. Isn't that amazing thing to say? How do we know? I'm glad you asked. Paul says, we know you're chosen, beloved by God, because, and at least nine different evidences of God's grace he gives to us. The last five, the, five, the first five we saw this last couple of weeks, that the gospel comes. Did you catch that? It comes. That is, it is something bigger that you are caught up in and you are apart, and it is apart from yourself. It is not something you choose inside of yourself, right? This is not, a, this is not like a journey of self-discovery. This is not a, an epic of self-expression. It's apart from us. It comes to us. Something disturbs us and confronts us. The second thing it says, it comes in word. That is, it comes in clarity and understanding. We see God is this, we are this. Jesus has done something here that is bold and powerful. And it says the third thing, it comes in power. It upsets you. That is, the gospel moves you, it disturbs you, it confronts you, it shakes you. And we think it actually, when it begins to take root in you, it transforms you. If you can hear what Jesus has done for you and not be moved by it, I want to warn you, you're in a bad spot. You haven't experienced the evidence of God's grace here, that the gospel is declared and it's received with power. Fourthly, we see it comes in the Holy Spirit. Last week, we just, we just sprinted through the New Testament, five different places where we at least, just even just a, just a few of the places where we see what the Holy Spirit empowering and enlivening the gospel looks like, right? It comes first to call, to, to call attention to the Lordship of Christ. And we see Jesus now as Lord, Master. We are radicalized by, by a new and powerful and sovereign King. And Jesus becomes that to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the Spirit, we're born again. That is, we're a part of something that, we, that we, we think we're choosing at the beginning, but then we realize, we're like, oh man, it, it's actually kind of choosing us. Like, I thought I was weighing the gospel, but then you step back later and look back and go, oh man, it was weighing me. We see that it gives us a new life. 
We saw that we no longer live according to the flesh, but we walk by the Spirit. We have a new set of guiding principles that allow us uh, to to see the fruit of God's work in our life and, and to not return to what we once were. And then we see that we are also not just by the gospel subject to a new law, but we are by the Spirit able to call God Father, no longer a slave master. The last thing we see here is that it comes with full conviction. That is, we are fully convinced of our sin, of our sinfulness, and our need, and we are also fully convinced of the sufficiency of Christ to meet that need. We are convinced that we are accepted and in right standing before God because of Christ. Now, these four things, the last of the nine, I would say no less than nine for the rest of this chapter, we're going to dig into beginning in the last half of verse five and spend our time there. And you see these things that... Now that the gospel has come in these ways, the fruit, the evidences of God's grace is that we will be imitating God in Christ, that we will become an example then for others to emulate. We begin to throw off idols, all forms of self-salvation or self-rescue, and then at the very end we say we, we patiently await Jesus to deliver us. We know that when We see this. Christ has done something for us that when our eyes are open to it and we trust in it completely, causes us to begin to lead others in imitating him as we throw off all forms of false rescue. Let's walk through those four things. The gospel does something powerful right here. It says that we find that in verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, right? What What a bold statement. What a, what a bold thing to say. Like, you know us. And I think we find in the example they set, and then he says in verse 6, you then became imitators of us and of the Lord, that is, of Jesus. See, the gospel makes us imitators of Jesus who make more imitators of Jesus through us. One, we see here through imitating the Lord, imitating Christ. And then two, through becoming an example to emulate. This is who we are. We are people who follow after Jesus, look more and more like him by some mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. We're less like the dead self we used to be, less like the world, less like people who are, who are scrounging for success and achievement and satisfaction and every other thing and look more and more like people who have peace and satisfaction because they know they're accepted by God in Jesus Christ. This is what this means. We, we actually think about being an example imitating Christ to the point that we become an example to emulate. These two things work hand in hand. This is, this is who we are, man. We, we talk about this on a regular basis. We are disciple-making disciples. If you, and, and again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I encourage you to kind of check our DNA series. We talked about this, but the first thing Jesus says to his disciples, he says, come, follow me, drop your nets, you fishermen, and I will make you fishers of men. So this whole disciple-making disciple thing unfortunately, in most of American Christianity, is considered varsity Christianity, right? Like, if you're a disciple making disciples, you have achieved, like, like you've achieved enlightenment. You've nailed it. And what we see, according to the New Testament, is that is the opposite of the truth. Disciple making disciples is elementary Christianity. That's the ABCs of Christianity. Literally, the first thing you hum in a tune so you'll never forget it. That was the first thing Jesus laid out for his disciples. You're going to be disciples who will make disciples. 
Follow me, and and I'll take this picture of fishing, and I'll do something crazy. We're going to fish people, and this kingdom's going to grow through people. So it's not varsity Christianity. It is elementary. It's pre-K. It is like whenever you learn the ABCs. I'm not a developmental psychologist. Whatever age you learn the ABCs at, that's what level of Christianity this is. Disciple-making disciples is what it means practically, okay? This means if you're looking for a church that will allow you to be a stranger, knowing no one and being known by no one, please stop calling yourself a Christian. Please stop. Any more than you should call yourself like a graduate if you don't know the ABCs. Please, you, you, you have not gotten the basic principles of following Jesus. You are meant to imitate Christ in such a way that others start to imitate you and through you Christ. Get it? This is ABC Christianity. So if, if you're like, I want to be a stranger so no one can see into the deep, dark spots of my soul, stop calling yourself a Christian. You're ruining it for us. You're teaching everyone in our city and in our region and in our world that you can follow Jesus as some sort of like individualized practice of self-expression. You're teaching everyone that you are Lord. You're the one who sets the gate of who comes in and out of your life rather than Jesus. Please stop doing it. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. I'm, I'm really glad. I want you to hear what this is because when you see the church functioning more like a machine with gears than a family, then please stop calling them Christians, right? Don't, don't take their word for it. We see here, like, there's a sense in which if the churches have any health, if there's a mark of grace here, it's that we become imitators of Christ to the point that people also start to imitate us. We imitate Christ. And because we believe he is who he says he is, and he's doing what he said he would do through us, we boldly ask others to imitate us. Here's the problem. Imitating Jesus and those imitating Jesus exposes our very shallow view of a person. Right? So if I told you, imitate me, grow up to be like me, right? This is what he did. He's like, you imitated us. You were like us. You followed in our footsteps, and others started following in your footsteps. When I say grow up to be like me, I promise you, this is, this is just because I know our culture and I know where we live. Unfortunately, you have such a shallow view of a person that that kind of trips you out, right? Grow up and be like me. What do you mean, like grow up and be a pastor? See what I mean? You think who you are is your job. Oh, you mean grow up and, and like dress or look or appear a certain way? See what I mean? You think what you look like to other people is who you really are. Right? Whenever I say grow up to look like me, so often, like the most shallow possible things that, that are features of a human are the things that come to mind first, rather than the substantive things. I mean, this is difficult. I fear we live in a strange place where you're not allowed to ask people to do hard things. Like to be an example that someone would want to be like. You're not allowed to ask people to do hard things unless it's something like chase your dream and get famous on American Idol. Then all of a sudden people get really daring, really courageous. But if you say something like model integrity for people, teach your children what it looks like to be consistently faithful in private and in public. If you tell people, set an example, set an example of Christ-likeness in the workplace, all of a sudden, you hear a list of excuses. Well, I can't, I just got this. 
I'm sorry, this is ABC Christianity. And for you to ask someone to do this, you'll get a million excuses. And I fear we don't have a deep enough view of people to do this well. We have to think more deeply about a person to get there, more slowly and more closely. Like, what does this person look like across the span of, I don't know, a decade? Right? I know you're excited about that thing you're doing right now, right? You're a great salesperson for that thing you're pumped about right now. Let's talk in 10 years. Just hang, just hang tight for a minute. Let's talk in 10 years. What if we thought about a person in terms of what was true about them over the course of 10 years, 20 years? Ask yourself this question. What is true about you now that was true about you 10 years ago? And the answer will scare you. Because I know you think you're awesome, but the thing you still have in common with you 10 years ago, you probably want to hide from everyone in this room. But friend, that's, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're after. The kind of integrity. Let it, that is the word integral, meaning it's together. Something that is disintegrated is falling apart. It is segregated. It is separated. Something that is integrated is one. It is, it is whole, and it is one here, and it is one there. And in two different circumstances, it's the same thing. It has integrity. This is what we're called to have. The marks of God's grace are that we begin to imitate Christ, and then others begin to imitate us. So let's do this. We've got all sorts of reasons why you don't want people to be like you. And I want to encourage you. That's a gospel issue. You are not as special as you think. That thing that you do, that achievement you put your hope in, it's not that special. And when we begin to put our hope in what Christ has done for us, something strange happens. A contagious confidence starts to spill out. And it demands that we think more deeply about what a person really is. Here's what this means for me. I want you and I want your children, I want you to grow up and look like me. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me. And, and again, I know you're clouded with all sorts of like superficial things about me, right? I'm going to talk like you, sound like you, dress like you, look like you, act like you, have a personality type like you. No, those are all incredibly culturally driven, superficial views of a human. I mean, like, do you have passion for Jesus? Do you love him deeply? Are you unashamed about how good he is to you? Me too. Let's go, right? Jump behind me. Let's follow Jesus. And you'll say, well, what happens if you mess up? Well, then here's what happens. I will be the lead repenter of this congregation. Follow me. You follow me. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. You ask other people to follow you. And think of it this way. Our goal would be to be the kind of people that if you step out from behind me, you are disobeying Jesus. Now, if I step out from behind Jesus and walk over here, you'll be forced to step out from behind me and follow Jesus, won't you? And everyone in line behind you. And history kind of shows this. People like following Jesus, kind of not. And every once in a while, we celebrate 500 years of this, this Halloween slash Reformation Day. We celebrate a bunch of people opened the Bible and said, no, no, let's get back in step with Jesus. Let's just listen to what he said and trust his word for us. It's a big deal for us. But if you're following me and I fail, that's, I'm, I'm going to rephrase that. Not if. When you're following me and I fail, then I'll keep leading you. Not in the wrong direction. I'll keep leading you in repentance. I'm going to be the first person. I'm going to be the first person to say, look at my weaknesses and yet look how God is redeeming them. I am not a finished product. 
but I strive, I, I set my eyes on, on the goal and I throw off every hindrance and I need your help to do that. Follow me. And if I fail, you keep following Jesus and I bet God will use you to call me back into it. Imitating Jesus and those imitating Jesus will expose your shallow view of a person. And unfortunately, when we say do as I do, it scares people. And I think that's because we're really afraid of losing a sense of ourselves and even a shallow sense of ourselves. We mean existentially be in Christ, be one with Christ. Make it such that if your children do as you do, they would look like Jesus. Make it such that your co-workers, if they followed your example, they wouldn't just look like you in the shallow means of, of like your sense of self. They would look like Jesus. And when you step out of line, you keep leading them. You don't quit. You sinned. Good for you. That's not a disqualification. You lead them then in repentance. I don't think our world needs more finished products. I think our world needs more people who show others how Christ-likeness is done through humility, confession, and repentance. You lead people in the footsteps of Jesus, and then you lead people in such a way that they would have to sin to step out from behind you. This is a high calling. This is a big deal for us. This demands something of us, doesn't it? This demands a kind of relationship. This demands a kind of authenticity. This demands a kind of honesty that probably, if, if you're honest with yourself, freaks you out. And you're thinking to yourself right now, boy, if they found out about this thing about me, I'd be sunk. And I want to encourage you that's probably the thing keeping you from imitating Christ, and I guarantee you it's the thing from leading anyone to imitate you with him. Imitate him with you. Here's the next thing we see. The gospel not only calls us to imitate Christ and lead others to imitate, but the, the marks of grace we see here in this particular place is that the gospel calls us to throw off idols. And parenthetically, I would we'll dig more deeply into this, especially in the weeks to come. Any other form of self-salvation or false rescue. You see this a lot. You see uh, liberals or conservatives believe what they do because of politics. But for many more, liberal or conservative isn't a political view. It's an identity. It is an identity. It is a place where they have placed their hope and trust. And they will defend it at all costs. Because that's what you do when you worship something. That's what you do when you exalt something to its highest possible state in your life. When someone speaks against it, they've blasphemed, haven't they? It's sacrilege. They've stepped into sacred territory. And for us, fill in the blank, there's many things that we don't just disagree about, we disdain one another. You seen this? I don't just disagree with this person. I think they are evil. And we justify all sorts of awful things. Why? Because they've threatened our idols. They've threatened the thing that we hold to the most dearly, the place where we find our sense of self. Charles Taylor in The Secular Age writes uh, about a frame, a framework of thinking that is now shaping the world. And it's secular in nature, that it is less religious, but not less religious in the way that you would think. In that more and more people, for instance, in the West, would identify as religious or as Christian. 
like, I mean, excuse me, less and less people would identify as Christian, but more and more people are acting and living more religiously. And this is really, this is important because some people say, like, I, I'm not, I don't believe in that, I, I don't trust that, I'm not religious. And less people would identify as religious, but more and more people have a religious worldview. Right? It's just that the religions have new names now. I love you. I'm not going to make any eye contact here. The religions are things like CrossFit, vegan, organic. The sacred texts for them are things like GMO or I mean, vaccine or anti-vaccine, whatever, right? Homeschool, public school, private school. Infringe upon these things and you will find out how religious people follow those things. You will find out how devoted they are to them. And and Charles Taylor makes a a really strong point for us to consider is that it's not that people are really less religious. It's just that they're less likely to love Jesus. They've just satisfied themselves with new things that they worship. Did you catch what's said here? Your faith has gone forth. Why? Why why do they report that something is amazing happening? In verse 9, it says, They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and then how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How do you know that the gospel has come? Because it then starts to call a new allegiance, a new loyalty. We begin to throw off all the false rescues. We begin to like throw away all the things that don't satisfy. You see, Christ has done something. When our eyes are open to it and we trust it, it causes us to begin to lead others in imitating us in what particular way? In the ways that we throw off all other forms of false rescue. This is powerful. This is something that's big for us. A language we use regularly is this language of idolatry. Now, this is important because we'll see in the next few weeks as we go back to Acts chapter 17, the place where the Bible teaches us how this church was planted, there's something unique about the Thessalonians. Whereas the Corinthians were, were a, it was a church planted from polytheistic pagans who did worship idols, the Thessalonian church was planted amongst a people that were either already Jewish or they were Gentile people who also were monotheistic and worshiped the God of the Old Testament. They weren't polytheistic, worshiping all sorts of handcrafted idols. That isn't how they worked. And so this, this has been a, a trick for some people like, as you begin to interpret this. What do you mean they turned from idols to serve the living and true God? These people were already polytheistic. And Paul's stabbing at something here. He's poking at something here with the Thessalonians and with their surrounding culture. And I think he's poking at you and me. If you're like, I've always been a Christian. I was raised as a Christian. This whole extreme view of Christian and like making disciples, that seems a bit much. Well, friend, whatever reservation you have, whatever that thing is, that's your true God. We talked about this on a regular basis. We saw this in the book of Jonah. Whenever you say something profound, and I encourage you to think in these terms, whenever you say something profound like, I'll trust God if, or I'll follow Jesus if, the thing on the other side of that if is your actual God. It's the thing you actually worship. It's the thing all your time, your talent, your treasure, all of your energy actually goes to. And when the gospel comes, you begin to see those other things as false rescuers. They don't really satisfy you. I encourage you, follow your emotions. 
follow them? What's got a grip on them? What's the thing that makes you literally pathetic, that is driven by your emotion? What's the thing that overwhelms you when it's threatened? What is it? Your spouse? Here's our favorite idol of American culture right now. Your children? That's our public social, our social, our social religion right now, our silver religion is helicopter parenting. Find your identity in your children. What's, where are your emotions? Where are they tied up? What stirs them up the most? Loneliness? Fear of failure? Because when you follow those, I think you'll come to find here that Paul is saying something profound, not only to these people who would have already been fairly religious, He's saying something to you and me about what we think we know about what we worship. What we think we know about who we really love. And these people, evidently, the marks of God's grace on their life was that they turned to God from those other things. And they said, if, if God doesn't save me, if he doesn't grant me hope, I'm lost. And this is pretty powerful. This is really powerful. God does something for us in Jesus that gives us a new life, a new identity. I hear this said in a lot of different ways. Uh, one of the things you, you kind of hear a lot of people say, look, if you'll, just, if you'll just look to Jesus and choose to follow him, and if you'll take your old life and all the things you were doing wrong, if you would just stop doing those things and now, and now be submissive to Jesus, like follow Jesus, do what he says, follow his commands. You choose to... to place your trust and to invite him and accept him. You do those, and, and that's really good. It's almost completely true. Almost completely true. But the reason it's not true is because it paints a picture of Jesus in which you right now have freedom to do whatever you want. And you're going to lay down that freedom in order to follow Jesus. You heard this? Like right now, your life is, you're free to do whatever you want. And you're going to lay down that freedom and then do what Jesus wants. You have freedom. And now you're going to go into serve and faithfully follow Jesus. There's something else going on here. You see, the person in the work of Jesus tells us that everyone in this room has a sense of a coming wrath. Did you catch that? They turned to God from idols and then they began to wait for Jesus who raised the dead, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You see, the gospel calls us also to wait expectantly for Jesus to do something. And that place where we often think that we are free, like we have the freedom to do whatever we want, and then we lay it down for Jesus, will rob you of joy in what Christ has actually done for you. You may believe yourself to be an enlightened person, right? You don't, you don't believe in things like heaven or hell or wrath. But here's the thing. In each and every one of you, there's a little voice deep down inside that tells you something's wrong. Something is missing. And the thing that you think will fix it, you are currently a slave to. We all have this sense of condemnation. We're all trying to do something about what that voice is telling us. We're all trying to fight it in some way. 
Now, it may be, have been exacerbated by like awful experiences, maybe your family of origin. It may be exacerbated by all sorts of things that have happened in your life, decisions you've made, decisions others have made, but it wasn't caused by those things. It was there before. And we're all waiting on something to rescue us. That thing that your emotion is tied to, that thing that little, your little voice in the back of your head is saying is wrong and you have to fix it, you're actually a slave to that thing. And you're trying to save yourself by, I don't know, living up to your parents' expectations, to your career, maybe in a relationship, maybe an achievement. And it will, if you'll let it, drive you all of your life. And while most people would say, like, you're free, you're free to do whatever you want. Now relinquish that freedom and follow Jesus. I want to encourage you, friend, don't miss this. Don't miss that he is what delivers us from that, that awful thing, that thing that's weighing on our souls. He, in fact, is the one who makes us free. You, as you currently sit, putting your trust in things other than Christ, are a slave. And you're a slave to those things. And if you tried as hard as you could to accomplish that thing that would make you feel better, you'd realize how much of a slave you really are. You see, the thing that you are waiting for is the thing that you serve. It is, in fact, your master. And the two alternatives we have aren't freedom and then Jesus. It's slavery or Jesus. Let me dig into this. Profound quote from, uh, I, 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 I quote stuff from all over the place, so here we go. From Harold Abrams in, in, in the story, The Chariots of Fire, he says something profound that I think resonates with all of us. He says, this is a man who, who wins gold medals running the 100 meters. And he says, I will be out there again on the racetrack. I will raise my eyes and I will look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? You feel that way? Maybe you're not a sprinter. Maybe you don't justify your existence or try to justify it for running really fast for 10 minutes. But what are the things you use to justify your existence? What are the things you use to prove your worth? What are the things you're currently trying to do to prove that you're valuable? How very familiar, isn't it? I've got, I've got one day or one week or one year to prove I'm a good worker. I've got one profound or insightful tweet or Facebook post to prove that I'm worthy of paying attention to, to prove that I'm smart. I've got this much time. I've got this much time to get married. I've got to endure this thing for this amount of time and then I'll be there. Do you get it? Do you, do you, hear, do you hear the slave master like beating you? Did you hear, like, no, you have to do this. Once I have friends, once I have this job, once I've achieved this thing. And you come to find out, as, as, as we see here in, in the Chariots of Fire, paints this powerful picture that one gold medal is never enough. We live in freedom. But that freedom only comes through Christ. Freedom to work, freedom to run, freedom to do whatever. Freedom to glorify God in all of these things. We live in that freedom, not because we're able to justify our existence in that, but because Jesus has justified our existence for us. 
my favorite quotes. I don't know if you remember this. Like Rocky. Rocky puts it this way. He's talking to Adrian. All I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go the distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life that I weren't just another bum. You feel that? If I do this thing, that's what I will begin to love. That's the thing that will give me a sense of contentment. Irving Berlin, probably the most important songwriter of the 20th century. You don't, probably have never heard of this person. And he has a powerful quote. He says, the toughest thing about success is that you've got to keep on being a success. And one of the more powerful things here, remember, this is a guy that wrote, he wrote somewhere between 1,000 and 1,500 songs, multi-million dollar record seller, okay? He, write song, he wrote songs like God Bless America, okay? He wrote songs like White Christmas. I mean, I'm sure your Taylor Swift favorite is going to be sung 100 years from now, but probably not. So this guy makes an impact, okay? And in his, and in his biography, his daughter said this, the thing that he feared more than anything else was that he had written his last hit. Can you resonate with that? You feel that? You see that? That, that? that longing to be delivered from the ominous and portending wrath that is to come? You see this in our literature, even we tell the children, right? And we tell them, this is the thing that will save you. Disney does this the best, right? Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. What you need is a relationship. Now, the feminists have attacked this, and, and rightly so, is that they're telling young girls that like, they're worthless and they need a man to come along and like, give them meaning, right? And the feminists have attacked this rightly, but they're not really honest. They're fairly hypocritical because guys do it too. You don't believe me? Have you ever seen Beauty and the Beast? Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, uh, the frog prince, guys do it too, right? We're a beast, we're a frog, we're ugly, and we need someone to come along and validate our existence. And they're telling you, like, that's what you need, someone to come along and esteem you, someone to come along and value you, to see through your homeliness like Cinderella, or to see through your, your ugliness or hideousness like beast or like a frog or like a hunchback. And you need someone to come along and affirm you and esteem you and give you some sense of value. And we tell our children this. These are, these, are the, these are the legends that we were raised on. And those things will leave us as a slave. Because unless you begin to see, there is a prince that comes and saves us. There is a princess who comes along and kisses us in our hideousness. And his name is Jesus. You see, the gospel is not, I'll just, I'll just throw off my freedom and then start following Jesus. The gospel, the good news is that you are a slave and Christ has come and released you to freedom. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. He likens them to a person adorning themselves for attention. Do you know this? Have you met this person? Don't make eye contact with anyone, right? The person who like dresses to get people's attention, okay? Just look at me. Don't look at people around you. Like, you know the, the woman or the man who, who wears clothes or does something that like it's really, they're really insecure and they need people's affirmation or attention? 
okay? Don't look right here. Don't look anywhere else. Let it be me right now. Just look at me. You know that person? So does the prophet Jeremiah. And he says something in Jeremiah chapter 40. And he says, oh, you, God's speaking to his people who are running from him. He says, and you, oh, desolate one. That, whew, man, that, isn't that a... Isn't that a powerful indictment for what we think is beauty and eye-catching? He says, you, oh desolate one, what do you mean that you dress in scarlet, that you adorn yourselves with ornaments of gold, that you enlarge your eyes with paint? In vain you beautify yourself. Your lovers despise you. They seek your life. You can try to get that attention. You can try to get that achievement. But friend, it's despising. It will always be beyond your reach. And you will be the devastated one, the desolate one. Don't you know that those things that you're chasing despise you? They don't care for you. Success is not waiting for you to show up. You get the picture? You get the picture Jeremiah paints here? A bride, all dressed up and ready. And she's waiting. She's at the altar and she's waiting. She's wearing white and she's waiting. And all the people are gathered around and she's waiting. And her groom never shows up. She's left at the altar, all dressed up. Friend, Jesus is the only one who will love you. Jesus is the only one who won't abandon you. Those other things, they will always be beyond your reach. They don't love you. They don't care for you. They hate you. William Cooper puts it this way, in a hymn some of you may even recognize. He says, while unbelief withstands thy grace, that is, we, we refuse to believe, and so it, it keeps us outside of the grace of God, and it puts thy mercy by, right? That is, takes God's mercy and pushes it away. It says presumption, that is, assuming you've already, like, achieved these things. Presumption with a brow of brass. Think a stern, firm look. Presumption with a brow of brass says, give me or I die. What's that thing in your life that if you lost it, you don't know how you go on? What's that thing that if you lost it, if it broke, if it went badly, you wouldn't know what to do? You wouldn't know where to turn? What's that thing? If it happened, you wouldn't know what to do tomorrow. You wouldn't know what to hope for. Did you catch the words? You wouldn't have anything left to wait for. What's that thing? Because for us, we see Jesus who has done something for us, who has reached down into the mess to draw us out. And we recognize that apart from his work, we have no hope. We have no hope. All these other things that we want to be satisfied in are the things that hate us. They despise us. They leave us desolate. Because if you don't long for Jesus, if you don't really wait for what he can do, then you're likely resting in some other idol. You're likely hiding your eyes from the pain or suffering and injustice in the world. And maybe the best thing that could happen for you is suffer. It's to suffer a little bit. So that you actually begin to long for this coming. Now here's the thing. Do you kind of feel it? You've been watching the news for the last few weeks. You get it? Have one of these things, whether it's people being devastated by uh, any one of the hurricanes, Harvey, Jose, you can't name them all. There's so many. They're just 
pounding, even right now, Hurricane Nate? Did it make you think like, oh my goodness, what do we do next? Maybe it was maybe one of the earthquakes that killed multiple people in Mexico City, or maybe if that wasn't enough this last week, someone turning a gun on a crowd of people, maybe that got you. Did you feel it? Did you feel just a little bit like, what are we doing here? I want to end with, I want, to hear, I want you to hear this good news. It's hard to know what to say after someone does something like happened in Las Vegas this last week. And I want you to see the narrative. The narrative that we usually believe, the, the fairy tale that we believe is that an individual can, a lone, a lone individual, can by means of violence influence great amount of people. Right? It's our fairy tale. It's, whether it's Batman, right? So the, maybe the violence isn't bad. Batman comes and beats up the Joker, right? So like, but your hero, the, the typical hero story that we tell is that a person, a lone individual, right? And this is big because we're, we're getting shattered by loneliness in our culture right now. Don't let your thousand Facebook friends fool you. You are lonely, I bet. And so like this lone individual through violence exerts power over a group of people. Batman, Superman, your favorite, I don't know, John Wayne, whatever your favorite superhero is, by violence they inflict power. It shouldn't surprise you that that's the narrative, that that's the storyline we believe. Whatever it is, pick your guy or girl, Wonder Woman, Thor. By violence, a single lone individual exerts power. It's only a matter of time before someone lives that out. And friend, don't you see the evidence of God's grace here? Don't buy into that lie. We don't have joy because maybe a lone individual through violence can exert power. We have joy because there was one lone individual who through being inflicted, violence was inflicted upon him, we now have joy. Alone, he withstood the violence. He's the one who withstood the pain and the suffering so that you and I would know joy. So that we wouldn't look at the things around us and say, give me or I die. But that we would be waiting like a bridegroom for Jesus to come back and claim us as his own. The end of that poem goes this way. The dearest idol I have known. Whatever that idol may be. God, help me to tear it from thy throne. That is, take that idol off of your throne to worship only thee. May we begin to let go of the things that we hold on to and say, give me or I die and receive the most beautiful gift that comes from Jesus, the evidence of his grace, that we become imitators of him. And people even want to contagiously imitate us in order to see that there is a greater joy, a greater hope. This one Jesus who has kissed us in our hideousness. He has rescued us in our abandonment. He has come to be for us what we could not be for ourselves, such that now he is the hope that we wait for and the only thing that can deliver us from the darkness that hovers over us. Let's pray together.